0: This is Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast, bringing you insights and views from across Asia's food value chain. Now for today's interview. Hi, everybody. I'm Duke Kip, host of Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast. And uh, you know, all of our episodes are special. We we like to think that at least, but this is a particularly special one for us today. We've got uh, a few reasons we're excited. One it's Earth Day, which is a big, uh, a big day uh, for this. This discussion, especially. Uh, secondly, this is our twentieth podcast, so uh, we're excited about this being the twentieth episode. And then uh, we're also hoping to take a, a deeper look into climate change, and a big issue impacting food and ag here in our region. So we've got a, another great uh, guest with us today to talk about that topic. Someone who's really an expert in that area. So, so we'll get started. Uh, and if it's okay, I'll introduce our, our special guest today. She's she's with us today. Uh, uh, to talk about, again, some of these climate change issues. It's Miss Dada Bakuda. She's a senior consultant, expert in climate smart agriculture, land use policy, and climate finance. She wears a few hats uh, in that in that area. One is co-chair with the Global Alliance for Climate Smart Agriculture and also is a convener with the ASEAN Climate Resilience Network. Hi, Dada.
1: Hi, Duke. How are you? Greetings Good. from Bali.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us. And so happy Earth Day as well.
1: Oh, yeah, happy Earth Day.
0: So if it's OK, we'll jump into the questions. And the first one um, sure. really sort of gets us off and running. Um, the, the theme this year with Earth Day is invest in our planet. And I think you probably agree when it comes to the condition of our planet, it's really impossible to talk about without talking about climate change and the impact that it's having. And one one organization, one body we talk about a lot on this podcast is the IPCC, that intergovernmental organization. Um, a panel on climate change that the U.N. oversees. And they, they've released a number of different reports in the last few months. One just came out, gosh, just a few weeks ago. That was uh, some new troubling information that came to light through that. I think the number, the stat that came to light was that roughly 22% of worldwide wind gas emissions in 2019 came from agriculture specifically and forestry and other land use sectors. So so with food production in particular, is this, is this finally the wake-up call? We have to do better with greenhouse gas emissions on the farm and maybe motivates food value chain stakeholders? That's
1: a great question. I think we have reached a point when we look at climate change per se is no longer debatable there's a huge amount of acceptance as before there it's largely been debatable but and i'm so glad with this development because at the beginning there's been resistance but the biggest struggle or work that we have done has been really connecting the impacts of climate change and the role that the sector has to play both agriculture and food system into contributing to the impacts of climate change. So it's both suffering from the impacts of climate change, but it's also a contributor. Hence, the solution is also lying within this field. There are so many technical solutions that need scaling up that's coming up within this field. At the beginning, we look at mitigation or lessening greenhouse gas emissions as some sort of an imposition or a costly exercise for smallholder farmers. But the climate policies and climate engagement in changing these policies are slowly turning around uh, in a way that there are some exciting opportunities in actually lessening greenhouse gas emissions in agriculture and food production. So there's where we are at this moment. Um, We started our work with really making a connection with the climate change dimensions in agriculture. As you know, climate change used to be just within the dimensions of ministries of environment when you're looking at climate policies, right? And this doesn't seem to be a concern of the agriculture sector. But through the years showing the connection of climate change impacts to agriculture, this has been the work that has been done in the past. And now we have even reached another level of acceptance in which we are now accepting that the sector can also contribute towards mitigation or lessening of greenhouse gas emissions that are impacting the sector. So that's a really good development, but we are in the crossroad now at defining the pathways towards more reduction in greenhouse gas emissions.
0: Uh, thank you. That's a very thoughtful, thorough answer. And something you touched on there, as far as um, you know, the larger sector and food and ag the value chain that is affected and really having to rally together, gets me to thinking about partnerships. If it's okay, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that. You know, you've had years of experience, uh, collaborative work, specifically in the area of climate change impact in Southeast Asia food production. Can you speak a little bit about the importance of the public-private partnership on this front, both both with the progress, as you've noted, as well as sort of where we need to Go and how we how we get there together.
1: Yeah, Duke. Um, the ASEAN Climate Resilience Network, which is the knowledge exchange platform, um, exchanging best practices, technical know-how on Climate Resilient or Climate Smart Agriculture, was also involved in supporting ASEAN or the Association Southeast Asian Nation in developing actually guidelines for encouraging or establishing or developing public-private partnerships within this sector. So there has been guidelines, which is basically how do we approach the private sector? How do we talk? How do we get them more interested? As you know, uh, let's be real here. Some of the guidelines are really just gathering dust on bookshelves. And here we need support in implementing this because these PPPs are really very important. ASEAN is an intergovernmental organization. And as such, we could see the shortcomings of the public sector. Uh, The public sector are impacted by so many pressing issues. And actually, private sector uh, there's more innovation happening in this field because, you know, if you are driven by an incentive of creating profit, for example, you would look at innovative ways in which you could both take social responsibility and at the same time create profit. So there's been a number of examples in the region. If you guys are interested, there's a host of examples, but my favorite would be, let's say, uh, BSF farming, black soldier farming, in which it's it's reduction of food waste uh, and you utilize uh, black soldier fly. The government is not aware of this practice, but there are smallholder private sector enterprise collecting food waste, for example, from, from hotels, resorts, and restaurants, and creating this because it's profitable and it, it gives them extra income. And in Vietnam, for example, the government signed to a more ambitious climate target uh, when the Global Methane Pledge was launched at COP26 but they're going to be able to only implement this in cooperation, for example, with private sector smallholder operators of pig farms and livestock. So it really underscores that the government's commitment can only be um, achieved with private sector cooperation. That's where innovation is. They're not hampered by so many bureaucratic protocols. They're just going to go ahead with some pilots that would show government, these are the areas that needed further support for scaling up. So these are great examples, and we really need to work more. And lastly, to answer the PPP question, um, the Paris Agreement contains Article 6. Article 6 is a guideline on really getting the carbon market takeoff. And here, We see the big role of the private sector in developing certified carbon credits, for example, because the government needs support in understanding the whole concepts for the Paris Agreement and engagement with um, Article 6 in order to fully utilize the opportunities offered by Article 6. So there is, there's that. The private sector carbon developers are out in the field right now um, interpreting and looking at how to fully get a hold of the whole benefits of Article 6 for the Paris Agreement, in which government is the one who signed the commitment. So exciting field in this area,
0: Duke. Thank you for that. And you touched on government a lot in that, and I wanted to maybe pivot a bit now to uh, looking more at, at the role of government in all of this. So touching on a lot of different data points that have come up recently, a lot of studies have come to light in recent um, days around the uh, impact to Southeast Asia, food security in particular from climate change. Just last month, probably have seen this, was a Food Industry Asia and Oxford Economics report noting that extreme weather over the past decade has added as much as 6% to the rate of food price growth in Southeast Asia. So that's troubling for one. Meanwhile, today, RepLife Asia is releasing the Policymaker Survey Climate Change in ASEAN Agriculture, indicating that more than half of ASEAN policymakers cite managing the impacts of climate change as the biggest obstacle for food systems here in the region. Not surprising, I suspect. But there's certain, certainly greater awareness around the effects of climate change on food security regionally and the latest study looking at governments in particular. But what needs to happen next on that front?
1: Oh, my gosh, dude. a lot needs to happen. Um, I think on this, what I call soft uh, issues that needs to happen, we really need to work together. It sounds like a very easy thing to do, but most of uh, grants and supports given to governments are really focusing on actual implementation of pilots of, let's say, certain technologies that lowers emission on the ground. But as you said, greater awareness has come around with unleash certain amount of funding to support these pilots. And it has become like a wild west. Everyone seems to be doing almost the same thing or repeating some things. And what we need is really greater coordination so that we could have higher impacts uh, in terms of what we are doing. um, Coordinate, see complementarities. First of all, this needs to be done. But what is really engaging at the moment, what is really occupying the time of governments right now is really defining the pathways. The government went to COP26 in terms of climate change issue, right? To make ambitious targets to say, we're gonna lower emissions with this tonnage of greenhouse gas. Um, But we are then now taking a step back and, and working with the science community to understand the meaning behind let's say net zero or net neutrality for for the future, right? So we are defining pathways on how to get there. And these pathways means that we really need to define the technical support that we need. The role of government is to define this in order to then access climate finance that are available there, uh, private sector investments that are also available there and looking at financial incentives that will allow them to explore further the technologies and innovation that are being offered to lower greenhouse gas emissions. Um, we need to also put out more of the best practices that are happening. I mentioned like one or two, like the black soldier fly. I mentioned also low emissions livestock that's being supported. We need to put out out all these best practices out there and identify what's best for the country, and then work with the private sector and the smallholder farmers. Um, We also need a lot of technical support in terms of monitoring, reporting, and verification. How are we then going to make a claim? How is each country, each government then going to make a claim that they actually lower the emissions? So they need this technical MRV system, monitoring reporting verification, which at the moment is not yet perfected. Um, we need to establish our baseline data that says this is our business as usual emissions level. So if we go into lowering our emissions in the food sector and agriculture sector, we can then make very verifiable claims that we have actually contributed to lowering greenhouse gas emissions. And we have the country has contributed to their commitments to the global target of lowering the temperature to 1.5 degrees, which is uh, the Paris agreement. We need also technical support in terms of looking at climate scenarios. What do we want to do in 2050 when we made a commitment for net zero? What do we want to do in 2040? What do we want to do from 2022 onwards to 2030. These all needs to be defined. And government has a great role in doing that because they're the ones signing these agreements. They're the ones reporting in an annual report to the conventions, to the climate conventions that they are a party of. So there's a lot of work to be done. And then also government is the one signed to access climate finance from the Green Climate Fund from the GCF. So they have as NDAs, uh nationally designated authorities have to listen to best practices, um, what do farmers want, and then access the money on behalf of the beneficiaries. So lots of work to do,
0: Duke. Lots of work indeed. Uh, very thorough. What a great answer though. I appreciate you you unpacking that for us. So there's a lot there. Maybe with the fourth question, turn back to consider the engine of all of this, the farmer, right? None of this is even a discussion if we're not considering the farmer who are really the food heroes here in Asia around food security, in particular, crop production. Well, here in Asia, specifically, that means smallholder farmers, as you know, our, our region home to the smallest size farms in the world and the largest number of smallholders as well. So keeping that in mind, the unique challenges that go along with that, but what needs to be done to make sure these farmers have what they need to be successful in? mitigating the effects of climate change will also be good stewards of the land and addressing the, that GHG emission issue we, we touched on earlier?
1: I think continuous conversation. I really like the message of one farmer's organization where they wanted to be not merely implementers of solutions that technocrats have thought of for them to implement. Their capacities need to be built up so that their solutions are already incorporated as part of technical solutions and rather than as mere implementers. The continuous awareness as well of the connection between their practice and impacts to climate change and their contribution to lowering these impacts or mitigating these impacts need to continue going on. And so I really say hats off to the farmer organization representatives who has never given up uh, on engagement with the conventions like UNFCCC because you know they are not assigned as negotiators Government sits down as negotiators, but, um, it, it's it's farmers who are merely thought of as implementers of solutions thought of by others. So there has to be greater inclusivity in terms of these solutions and greater awareness being brought to the farmers of the connection with climate change and what they are doing. And the greater role that they play in the solutions, rather than merely looking at smallholder farmers as contributors. let's say when you look at crop burning, it's often the the farmers being blamed, but they need more solutions and they do have solutions. So these solutions, for example, since the 80s have had several solutions of reduction of crop burning when we look at rice farming and there needs to be greater incentives for them to shift to these
0: practices. Thank you for that. The fifth question is, is is here at hand. And so with this one, we usually kind of light things up a little bit. We talk about some very serious topics and you may want to expand on one of those serious topics as well. Certainly climate change is the, is the one we're discussing here today. But is there anything you might look at in the next five to 10 years and you think this is something that's going to be, we're going to see some progress as sort of a game changer that's coming on the horizon if you were to make a prediction?
1: Yeah, well, Duke, there's often like an emphasis looking at long-term strategies, right? But then we are also then looking at short-term what we are doing now. And in fact, Duke, I think that our experience with the pandemic, COVID-19, in which we saw quick mobilization of government to respond to this uh, crisis. This provides a model of how we should also respond to climate change in in the long term, because both short-term response and long-term response to pandemic and to climate change draws parallelism. And so I would like to actually share a picture. Duke, you're seeing this now. This is a visioning exercise of in the long term and in corresponding to the 2050 pledges that the government want, what do they want to see? Governments and then representatives of stakeholders, what do they want to see in 2050? So in 2050, when their climate pledges have hopefully been achieved, what they wanted to see, these are not final and not Formally endorsed, uh, but there are key phrases that we can be guided. We wanted to see resilient, low emissions Asian agriculture that's biodiverse, pollution free, and an agri food system that provides healthy and nutritious food for all by 2050 in Asia. Then we did an exercise with this picture of 2050 to 2040, what do we want to do? 2040 to 2030, what do we want to do? But then the most recent, 2030 to 2022, what do we want to do in these next 10 years? You've asked me in quite a short time, in the next 10 years, what do we want to do? Well, we wanted to be more engaged with key stakeholders, meaning private sector, academia and research, government, development partners that has the technical know-how to do this, and work with the farmers or producers. These are the key stakeholders. And why do we want to engage with them more? This is to activate the key drivers of change that will bring us to the vision in 2050. To activate the key drivers of change, we see government policy as an enabler, opening up of finances, looking at technology and innovation, and continuously looking at increasing awareness and education. So, Duke, I know you asked me to um, make it fun and light as uh, the last answer to this last question, but it's kind of serious, right? But, But there's an enormous work to do. And so in the next 10 years, to answer your question, it's really engaging in such a way that government policies are crafted to bring us to the 2050 vision. Financing is more open. We really had to break down the doors of the GCF, as well as to really attract innovations from the private sector and and establish more PPPs. And really entertain as well innovative ways of approaching an agri food system and continue to work on awareness and education. I think so many stakeholders are out there doing this now. What we need is to coordinate our effort so that we all know it's contributing to 2050. And I think that's the task at hand, Duke.
0: It's a great answer. And I think we're all working towards the same thing in 2050. And those benchmarks along the way, getting there is going to be the real journey and the challenge, I think, for every part of the food supply chain.
1: And let's not forget, too, there's war and we're not yet super feeling it in the Asian region, but there has really been perhaps disruption in the supply chain that we are going
0: to experience soon. Yeah, absolutely. Now We, we touched on that. You're absolutely right. Between COVID and the conflict and uh, climate change, the three big C's. There's been a lot it affected the food production and food security here and more to come, unfortunately. So a lot of work to do. Since you're officially off the five good questions hot seat. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining today and for your insights on climate change here and happy Earth Day. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review and subscribe. We look forward to bringing you another five good questions interview.